All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your words, power, and authority, and I pray that you open our hearts and let your light come and shine in, Lord, in the darkest parts that that are still held by sin and that are a little bit confused. Um, Battle between the flesh and the spirit. God, I pray your light comes and invades and it conquers and it overwhelms us. Absolutely slay us before you, Lord, that we can only look up and say, help me and give me mercy. God, we want, like last week we saw, we want to find grace in your eyes and not to put up our own fight, but to completely rely upon everything that you give us. So, lead us to the study. Holy Spirit, amen. Genesis 6, verse 9, we hit the flood. The destruction is coming. And we looked last week in chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, why the flood is coming. There is mad sin going on. The sons of God, whomever they are, took the daughters of man, who are probably women, and they have these sexual relationships that God abhorred, and apparently from this came the Nephilim, which is the Hebrew word for giants or fallen ones. And so there's this cluster of scary people and sons of God and daughters of men and they're doing something and God, it was so bad that God had to wipe it off the face of the earth. Now, last week we talked about three theories. Sir? The first theory is that um, they, the sons of God are demons, fallen angels that actually had sex with women. We talked about the support and the problems for that. The second theory is that the sons of God are the godly line of Seth, one of Adam's sons, and the sons of the daughters of man are the ungodly line of Cain, and there were mixed marriages that God wasn't happy about. There's good support and bad support for that as well. The third theory is that the sons of God are kings who claimed divine kingship, that they were the son of whatever God they worshipped, therefore the people need to follow them, and they grabbed women amongst the kingdom to gratify their sexual pleasures and to, um, it was part of worship to, you would manipulate the gods by reenacting what you want the gods to do. So kings would have sex with women to show the gods, we want fertility, we want population and prosperity in our city. So it could be that the kings started to grab women, all whom they chose, and that the Nephilim were possibly their big-headed sons. Maybe demon possession going on behind that. Those are the three theories. We have no idea. They all have problems with the theories. But whatever it is, This is a problem that God had to wipe off the face of the earth. And if you want to hear all that in detail, um, you can go to iTunes and look at Sunday Night Bible Study and find it. And you'll get the whole thing. So, um, but the spiritual application of that, guys, is whatever was going on there, there is definitely problems in our hearts when we allow these unnatural unions with our spirit and the flesh. And we allow the passions of our flesh to come and battle with the Holy Spirit within us. And we begin to give the flesh its will. And if you guys ever noticed, the more you lie, the easier it is to lie. The more you feed your lusts, the easier it is to give in to those lusts. And any type of sin, any type of lust, it just gets bigger the more you feed it. 
and the, the flesh can take over the spirit. And that's when our flesh grows and it becomes a Nephilim. It becomes a giant. And we look at it and say, oh my, we can't handle this. Just like the Israelites, when they went to the promised land, they saw the Nephilim and said, we can't handle this. We don't want to go and inherit the promised land. Our flesh can get out of control and it can actually prevent us from walking in God's blessings and in His promises. So what we need is to be like Noah, but he, verse 8, found grace. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we simply need to rest in what Jesus wants to do through us by His grace. It's not our fighting, it's His grace that will conquer these giants. So, that's all the sin. And God needs to wipe it out. So that's what the flood's all about. When I was a kid, about three, four, and five, my mom dressed my brother and I in all white. Now, if you guys have been around kids, it's not the smartest color to dress them in. Uh, we were like Lewis and Clark, and Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, all those like explorers when we were young. We went romping around in the parks and exploring bugs and worms and mud holes and all sorts of stuff. And we would come home and those white clothes were not white when we got home. They were a mess. And it's like, Mom, what are you thinking dressing little kids in white? You know what they do when their hands get dirty? <laughs> and they, and you, when they pick their nose, either that or this, <laughs> it just makes a mess. And, um, you, of course, kids get home, it's a filthy mess. So what do you do with the clothes? Throw it in the laundry. And the, the dirt gets washed away and it comes out white and renewed. But if you put those white clothes back on a kid, it's just going to happen all over again. See, the problem isn't the clothes, because you can wash the clothes and they're clean. The problem is the kid wearing the clothes. No matter what happens, no matter how clean you make the clothes, the kid is going to get the clothes dirty once again. And that's the problem we have on the earth. The earth is just corrupt. And God's going to wash it clean. But the problem isn't the earth. The problem is the men on the earth. And as long as man's on earth... <laughs> it's going to get dirty again. So, God sees the filth. He's going to wash it away. But we're going to see, at the end of the flood narrative, Noah sins right after he gets off the ark. The whole cycle starts all over again. And the lesson God wants us to see in the flood narrative is, it's not a new start that we need, it's a new heart that we need. You don't need to just wash the clothes. You need to change the habits of the kid. And that's the problem on this earth. We keep thinking, oh, new start, new start, better government, more education. It's not going to work. We need new hearts. We need Jesus to literally change us, His Spirit to rule us. We become new creations. That's what we need. And that's what the flood shows us, is that... There is no remedy for earth's problem except for Jesus Christ coming to earth. So, this flood is very interesting in that it is a reflection of the judgment to come on earth yet in the future. Civilization's been going on, we don't know for how long. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years. We have no idea how long civilization has been here up to Genesis 6. But the world is populated, verse 1 tells us, and it's just growing. 
and the wickedness is awful. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And that's what's happening. And Jesus said, As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be when I return. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when I return. Specifically, it's Matthew 24. Jesus says, For in those days, Matthew 24, 38, in Noah's days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving him marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, man will be going on in his way, sinning away, and God is going to return. It's like the flood. They didn't even believe it was coming. They didn't even know it was about to hit them, and bam, it hit them. Jesus is going to return. And how many people scoff at that idea? Noah's made fun of for building the ark. We're made fun of for rapture theories or the return of Jesus or that he's going to hold us accountable for our actions and our sins. Because, hey... We've been going around for thousands of years and nothing's happened. It's not going to happen. Keep eating, keep drinking, for tomorrow we die. Marry and give in marriage. Just enjoy your life. It's going to come, though, quite suddenly. So there's a parallel here. Go to second. Hold your place here and go to Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. Some of the parallels are that clouds would have hovered to bring the rains of the storm. And when Jesus returns, he's going to come in the clouds and return to us. Um, we saw how the days of Noah, are, the days here are going to be the same when Jesus returns. And in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 5, he's talking about scoffers who say Jesus isn't going to return. He says, they deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the waters, the world that then existed in Noah's day, was deluged, it was flooded with water, and it perished. But, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godly. <laughs> Peter says, look, there was a time when earth was bad and God flooded it. There's going to be a time when Jesus is going to return and destroy the wicked with, not water, but fire. So we have a reflection. The judgment then, judgment to come. Some scholars see a further reflection in that Enoch was walking with God and settling with no more right before the flood comes, they would say um, that's a picture of the church that will be raptured right before the tribulation, the flood comes. And that Noah and his family were saved on the ark and the Israelites will be spared by God through the great tribulation. That's a picture that some of them see. So, God is going to repeat history 
just not with water, but with fire next time. So let us get in now in verse 9. It says that these are the generations of Noah. So we're starting the third generations in Genesis, the third chapter that Moses gives to it. And Moses or Noah was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He was righteous, blameless, and he walked with God. What a difference Noah was from all the other people on the face of the earth at this time. But it wasn't because it wasn't because Noah walked with God or that he was righteous or that he was blameless that God gave him grace. It wasn't like he said, hmm, the earth is all corrupt. Oh, there's a good guy. I'm going to give him grace. It wasn't like that. Verse 8 comes before verse 9. Moses, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Therefore, he walked in righteousness. So this isn't like Mo, no, this wasn't like Noah was being rewarded for good deeds. God totally came in and gave Noah grace and kept Noah in his grace. And Noah was therefore a righteous man. And Noah was selected and Noah was protected all through the coming judgment. So the judgment's coming and God tells him to make an ark, verse 13. I determined to make an end of all flesh, for all earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. And he goes on to explain how to make the ark. It's to be 400 feet long. So that's a football field and a third. <laughs> long boat, 75 feet wide, so it's over the width of a football field, and 45 feet high. So it's this big boat. Now, by the way, the Babylonians had a flood story. In fact, many cultures have flood stories, which shows us that there's some legitimacy to an actual flood happening in the past. But their stories don't make sense. The Babylonians described the ark as a cube. Here, God describes Noah's ark as this long, this wide, this high. The same dimensions we use for ships to this very day. This is a seaworthy vessel. But the Babylonians' little square boat makes no sense. Because, man, when the waves knock that thing, you know what's going to happen to it? It's going to spin like a top. And you're going to have lion barf, elephant barf, zebra barf, Noah's wife barf everywhere. And they're going to be slipping and sliding and not having a good time the whole time. So clearly, they just have all these myths. But there's some legitimacy to this account of the flood. God seems to know what he was speaking about to Noah. And so Noah builds this boat. Now, of course, scoffers would say, okay. But come on. You can't believe that every single animal was on the boat. There's no way that they would all fit on the boat. Aha, but <laughs> have you considered how big the boat is? The boat was three million cubic feet. That's three million cubic feet. It has three floors. And they have done, smarter people than I, have done the research and have discovered that there are some 35,000 species of animals on this earth. 
Now, 25,000 of those species are worms. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe that, that there's 25,500 worms out of 35,000 species. That's, that's a lot of worms. But, um, so let's just assume that those worms all fit in the cracks, so we have you know, some 17,000 animals left. Double it because there's two of each kind, so we're back up to about 35,000-ish. These are all round in numbers. And so 35,000 animals, do they really all fit on the ark? Well, you have to find the average size of the animal. You got big ones like elephants. You got little ones like rabbits. You take the average size, and it turns out to be the size of a lamb, a little sheep. Now, you guys have seen those box cars, the cattle cars on railroad trains, how big they are. Well, those box cars hold... 240 sheep. So one of those cars holds 240 sheep. How many of these cars did the ark hold? The ark was able to hold 520 of these cars. So that's how much 3 million cubic feet. 520 box cars, 150 sheep fit into, I'm sorry, 240 sheep fit into each car. So how many box cars would that make? I'm, you don't, I'll do it for you. Don't worry, Chris. Don't hurt your head there. <laughs> 35,000 animals the size of a sheep would all fit into 150 boxcars. And the ark can hold 520. There's plenty of room. I'm sure Noah and his sons played pad football. They played lacrosse. They had shuffleboard going on. They had whole speed pool table set up. They were, they had it made. And there's definitely enough room in the ark. Now, did I have a hand over there? No. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, don't do that again. <laughs> That's a good after question. That's a great after question. It's a great question for after. So then the Lord said, chapter 7, verse 1, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And so he takes some clean animals for sacrifice. And Noah was for six, 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And so he takes his wife and his sons and their wives, and they all enter into the ark, and they wait seven days before the flood comes. And I'm sure the animals at this time, the seven-day wait, are all marching in two by two, hurrah, hurrah, as they go into the ark. And you know what? Noah didn't have to go find these animals. God, like he brought them to Adam, God brought them to Noah. And Noah just had to fulfill one job, build me a boat. And by doing so, Hebrews 11 says that he demonstrated faith and belief in God by building the boat. It wasn't just intellectual faith. He walked in it. He showed visible proof to the invisible truth of God's word. He built the boat. And by doing so, Hebrews 11 continues to say, he condemned the world. In other words, he judged the world worthy of destruction. He looked at it and said, this world is not for me. I'm building a boat to save me and my family. So he obeys. God sends the animals. And um, I love that because I played a video game when I was, I don't know, in my elementary days. This is back on original Nintendo. 
old school here with two buttons on the right side and four directions on the left, very simple remote. And it actually had a plug-in, it wasn't wireless, and it didn't vibrate on you. Anyways, um, I had this game where you had to be Noah, and you had to go find all these animals, and you had to go catch them and put them on the ark. It was great. And there were monkeys swinging in trees. You had to go climb the trees and jump around and chase them. And you had to, there was lions that could hurt you and maul you and had rocks, and you are supposed to hit the lions so that they get knocked out and carry them into the ark. It was, a, it was a great game. I hated the monkeys, though. Oh, they were... Anyways, no one didn't have to do that, though. And God's so great, man. He doesn't call us to do things that we're not capable of doing. He says, look, you can build the ark, Noah. I'm going to take care of what you can't do. I'm going to bring the animals to you. If you build it up, they will fill it up. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> little sandlot there. Or, Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. So, in the 600th year, verse 11, of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on all, on that day, all the foundations, the fountains, of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Everyone went to bed peacefully that night. They look up at the sky after their drunken party, <laughs> limping their way home, needing support, designated walker. Didn't have cars then, probably. Um, Look at this guy. <laughs> the crazy guy building the boat. <laughs> Noah. <laughs> Joke of the party, you know. And they look at that boat and laugh as they go into their homes. They look up. Stars. <laughs> and I go to bed. Early in the morning. Everyone startled out of bed, terrified by the crash of lightning. What was that? What was that? And they begin to look out their windows. None of, they never heard lightning before. They come out of their doors. They look up. That was freaky. And then the earth starts to rumble. What's going on? And then out in the distance, they see the earth begin to split apart. This huge crack. And it goes straight through their neighbor's house. And the house caves into the earth. And it keeps splitting across the face of the earth. And then the earth keeps rumbling. And water just spurts through the crack. Like a geyser, so much pressurized water just shoots straight up. And they're terrified. Can you imagine? She's explosions around you and the, the hill over there starts erupting lava. And you're just, oh my gosh. And um, then it begins to rain. What's rain? I don't know what this is. Water's falling so fast, it's starting It's up to the ankles. And everyone's looking around, what do we do? Head for the hills. And... Ocean waves, if you're on the coast, start to wash up into the town, and it's up to your waist now. And you're panicked. You're running, and people start fleeing to Lake Arrowhead and start to run up the 18, trampling over each other, stealing horses, and it's chaos. People are being trampled. People are dying, and some are going up this way. Oh no, lava's coming down the hills. Go up this way, and it's chaos. And soon, San Bernardino's just flooded. And it's coming up the mountain. There's debris everywhere. There's, there's things falling from tidal waves and smashing people in the rocks. They're trapped. They're hit by trees, like avalanches of all kinds of stuff happening. And, 
and you're just on the mountain, and you guys are camping out, and it keeps coming, it keeps coming. The mountain is covered. You grab for a log, and you're holding on to that log for dear life, and it keeps rising, and soon the whole world is just water. So let's say, let's just say, there's some lucky people who survived the chaos of water crashing and earth splitting and lava coming down. Let's just say some lucky survived. Well, they're hanging on to that log for dear life. A week goes by. Alright, they're still holding on. The second week comes and their stomach's growling. What do I eat? What do I do? What do I drink? The water's contaminated with rotten flesh. It's salt water. It's got lava and blood in it and debris. And you can't drink it. What do you do? There's nothing to eat. So slowly, you're holding on. You see people all around you holding on debris. One slips off. Another dies. One by one, they're falling off. And eventually, you do too. No one's going to survive this. The waters, the whole flood took 371 days before Noah was finally able to get off the ark. Nobody survived. You can't even build a bomb shelter for something like this. Water's going to find every crevice. Yeah, well, the food problem and the water problem, of course, no one believed it was going to happen. Can... Was there really a universal flood? Can we really buy into this? Because there are Christians who compromise and say, well, you know, it's hard to believe and all, so let's make it more believable. It wasn't really universal. It wasn't the whole globe, in other words. It was the local area of Noah's time, the whole Mediterranean Valley. That's really all the known world at the time. So water just kind of flooded the basin area and tidal waves came and swept everybody away and it was really not that big of a deal. Or a meteorite hit the earth and water flooded everything and it all went away very soon. It was a local flood. I have seven problems with that. You know, you want to give me them all. Seven problems with that. The first is the depth of the flood. In chapter 7, verse 19 you see that the, uh, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains were under the whole heaven and they were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, which is about 23 feet. So, the highest, which is it? Mount Everest? I know you can rely on you. <laughs> 23 feet underwater is Mount Everest. So... I'm sorry, it was a local flood? Yes, that too. Also, the duration of the flood, um, 371 days, I'm sorry, local floods don't last that long. That's an epic global problem. The third problem is geology. In verse 711, we already read it, um, the fountains of the deep burst open. This is worldwide. All the fountains of the deep, these underwater, underground waters that used to exist just came out. That's a worldwide problem. The fourth problem is the ark. The size of the ark demands that this was a big flood. Huge boat. And the need for an ark. If this wasn't universal, why wouldn't God say, go to Everest, hide out there for a while, I'm going to do some business, and then he can come back. God said, build a boat. The fifth problem is Peter. 
We already read this in 2 Peter 3, but Peter testifies to the future destruction of fire, which is going to be universal to the flood. So it wouldn't make sense if the flood was local, and then Peter said, Jesus is going to come back and do the same thing, a local judgment on wicked people. It's a universal judgment. So Peter himself says that it's going to talks about it like a universal flood. And then the sixth problem is God's covenant in chapter 9, verse 11, where he says he's never again going to destroy the earth with water. If he was referring to a local flood, God lied when it happened at New Orleans. God's lying right now as Mississippi is flooding its banks. God lied thousands of times. Obviously, it's not a local flood. And then the last problem is the longevity of life in um, People living up to like 500 years, having kids up to 500 years, and multiplying all over the earth. 6 verse 1 says that they multiply on the face of the land. You need a universal flood just to deal with them all. So, there you go. We have some sort of confidence in a universal flood. Yes, sir. I know, they're early. He told me to come at 45. They're early. So we'll come at 45. <laughs> Thank you, though. All right. Um, I want to close this evening with looking at how we see Jesus in the ark. It's a very good habit, Christians. When you read the Old Testament, look for Jesus. The Apostle Paul found Jesus everywhere. You see his epistles quoting the Old Testament left and right. And he's quoting things that you're like, when I read that, I wouldn't necessarily see Jesus in that. But Paul sees Jesus there. Learning to read the Old Testament as Paul read it. Looking for the promises of the Messiah all over. And what it meant for Noah to be in the ark is what it means for you and me to be in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. What it meant for Noah to be in the ark is what it means for you and me when the New Testament says to be in Christ. Romans 8 verse 1. There is now therefore... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for Noah. Noah was in the ark. And the condemning floodwaters came and they beat against the sides of that boat and thrashed it and spun it around in places. It went up the waves and down the waves and the rains poured on top of it. But Noah was safe inside no condemnation reached Noah. Jesus is that for us. As we're in Jesus, the wrath of God that comes down upon sin, it's supposed to come upon us. But Jesus stood in the way and said, I'm taking the bullet, I'm taking the hit. And all of the wrath came upon Him as we're inside of Jesus, safe like the ark. Be upon Him. And we have no condemnation. So what it meant for Noah to be in the ark is what it means for the Christian to be in Christ. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. We're going to start to see the details and how this works. 6, verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, the pitch was to fill in the cracks for the planks of wood, fill in holes, make it waterproof so that none of the judging waters would come in and touch the people inside of the ark. 
Now what's intriguing about this word pitch is it's the Hebrew word kafar. And the 70 other times that this word is used in the whole Bible, it is never translated pitch. It's only translated pitch here. Every other time, they translate this word atonement. And atonement is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. As he hung there, he made arms outstretched. He made us at one atone with God the Father. He bridged the way. He brought man's perversity up to God's perfection. And there, he made us at one. He atoned us to God. And that is exactly what the ark did. God said, cover the ark with atonement inside and out. And there you'll be safe from the judging waters of the flood. Consider where atonement is used in the Bible. I'll read to you Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given the blood for you on the altar to make atonement, to make pitch for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement, that makes pitch for your life. So the blood of Jesus, obviously Leviticus speaking of the future blood of Jesus that's going to make atonement for our souls. The blood of Jesus is like pitch for your soul, covering every little hole so that the judgment waters of God do not come in and destroy your soul. That's the blood of Jesus. As He hung there on the cross and bled, He was making pitch for your souls to protect you from the judgment. Guys, we are covered inside and out with the atonement, the pitch, the blood of Jesus. Consider also verse 16 in chapter 6. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set a door? No, set the door of the ark in its side. The door. There was one door on this ark. One door. Did not Jesus say in John chapter 10, I am the door. I am the door. If anyone comes in some other way, he's a thief and a robber. But the sheep come in through me. I'm the door. John 14, verse 6. I am the way. I am the truth, the life. And no man comes to the Father except through moi. I am the door. There's no other way. And so here the ark, we see it's Jesus. We come into Him one way. Just as Moses, Noah, had to come in to the ark. Also, consider verse 7, verses 8 and 9. Of clean animals and of clean... Well, you know, I'm not going to read it um, for the sake of time. That's where we see that the animals all come to Noah. They come to Noah. They get on the ark. We see nothing about Noah striving to gain the animals. This is John 6. Totally. Consider this. What Jesus said. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Did Noah go get the animals? Or did God bring the animals to the ark? 
All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Um, John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's totally like the ark. The Lord drew the animals to the ark, which is Jesus. He brought them to Jesus. And Jesus said the same thing in John 6. No man comes to me on his own accord. It's the Father who touches the heart, who stirs the heart, who illuminates the heart to come to me. It's the Father who brings you to me. And what happens to the animals when they all get in the ark? Well, we see the lion mauling the head of the lamb <laughs> and the giraffe um, stomping on the mouse and the dog chasing the cat. We see none of that. They're in perfect harmony. It's when we come to Jesus, when we come inside of Jesus, it says there in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that He makes us a new creation. These passions and these flesh that war within us, these animal desires to maul off the heads of our neighbors and other things, it totally changes. Jesus gives us the fruit of the Spirit, and we become new creatures, docile creatures, not pathetic little animals, but and that have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit inside of us. And there's people that once we could never stand, can never tolerate, Guess what? We tolerate them now. <laughs> Ephesians 2 talks about the different nationalities that are part of the church. Gentile Jew. Gentile Jew. Jews hated Gentiles. Jews called Gentiles dogs. Jews never went into the same house as Gentiles. But when the church started, Paul says the wall was broken down and they become one new man. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. There's no Greek. No man. No woman. No slave. No free. We're all one new creature in Jesus Christ. So, no more dogs chasing cats and cats eating mice. We're new creatures. Also, look who shut the door in chapter 7, verse 16. And those that entered, male and female, all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. So Noah got in and he had to pull the rope on the door. Oh, this is heavy. Help me, honey. Oh, come on, sons. Strap it to the elephant. Move. No. God shut the door. He shut him in. God's hand is... And it's like God's hand has kept the door shut. Jesus said, I know who are my sheep. And no man plucks them out of my hand. I believe in eternal security that when you're saved, you're saved. I also believe that there are Christians who could lose their salvation. Brandon, you totally contradicted yourself. No, no. If the Father brings you to Jesus, if there's true conversion and you're in Christ and He shuts the door, you will never lose your salvation. But there are people who say, I'm a Christian. They even look and smell like a Christian. But the Father never drew them. He never shut them up in Christ. They've done it all on their own. They can indeed lose whatever salvation they have. And then, um, baptism, for sake of time, I'm not going to go these passages now, but 1 Peter 3 relates to the flood as a baptism. They were saved through water. We too go through water to demonstrate our our identity with Christ. Going in the water, death, coming out, life, 
We're unified with Christ. Just like the ark going through the waters. And then lastly, we see that there was lots of space on the ark, right? Lots of extra space. Lots of room. Who knows? Maybe God wanted other people to join Noah and none of them would believe. But I think sometimes we have this mentality of there's no room for me in Christ. I've blown it way too bad this week. I don't even want to confess this and I don't even want to address it to God. I'm just going to keep going in this direction because I just, I can't even, I can't even deal with it. But 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess, we become open, honest, and real and truthful with God, which lay and barf our sin out before Him, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is plenty of space for God's grace in your life. Why do we not want to come to Him then? Because as 1 John chapter 1, the context there goes on to say, because men walk in darkness. And when your eyes adjust to darkness, because you're so used to your sin, you know, you know, you turn off the lights here, your power goes out, it'll be very dark. But slowly our eyes will adjust and we'll be able to make out, oh, there's a person there, there's a cliff there, stairs. there's, you know, a vending machine there. We'll be able to make some things out. Our eyes adjust to the dark we're in. And when we're in sin long enough, you are going to adjust to it and you're going to get used to it. And you're not even going to realize that you've left the light anymore. But what else happens when you're in that darkness and your eyes adjust and the lights just boom on? What happens? Ah, the, uh, the, uh, the light hurts my eyes. I can't even look at it. I have to squint. I have to close them. We don't like the light at that point. That's what happens when our eyes adjust to our sin, when we get used to the darkness. Is we don't even want to come to the light anymore because it just hurts our eyes. And there can come a point where we harden ourselves in sin because we become so used to darkness we may not even realize how far we are from the light. And it's these people that I do not guarantee salvation for because they're proving, John says, people that are really saved walk in the light. And if we keep walking in the darkness, we're just confirming our own heart's decision. But God likes to know and wants to give grace. And He says, just come, give the confession. First John 1 John 1.9, I'm faithful and just. There's plenty of space on my boat for all of those sons of God and daughters of men and Nephilim and sinners out there to come onto the boat. But they're unwilling. So guys, Christ is our salvation. And that is what the flood shows. It's not the shirt that needs help. It's the man. And Jesus changes the man. So Father, I ask that you draw all men to your son tonight. All who have stubbornly just been walking in their sin or have never even known you. Draw them into Christ. Give them that salvation to come on the great boat of salvation. So, Lord, we ask that you do the work and that you shut the door. You confirm them. In Jesus' name, amen.